in the booklet. It's going to be um, right there. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like in your booklet, but right there um, where it says naming the animals part. So we'll, we'll, you can find it. Flip till you find that. Uh, let's read tonight verse 18 down through 25. Now, this is very key because what this is doing is this is setting up for the creation of Eve. This is setting up for the marriage, the home. This is really the title of the booklet and really the whole thrust over the next couple of weeks is uh, the home, the heartbeat of humanity. So goes the home, so goes society, so goes everything. The home is absolutely so critical. And unfortunately, and as we'll see uh, maybe a little tonight, but over the next week or two, we're going to see how truly critical the home has been in the downfall of our own society here in America and how absolutely critical it is to have biblical marriages, biblical understanding of, of sexuality and gender, uh, biblical understanding of what it means to be human, biblical understanding of roles of male, female, husband, wife, children, the, the whole nine yards, and to see how all this comes together and impacts not just what happens inside of one home or one house, but rather how it impacts all of society completely. And for us, and in our context, how it affects the local church and, and how, how important strong homes make strong churches and strong believers make strong homes, strong fathers and, and mothers make strong homes. You know, we see the, the, the whole thing. So let's read here verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to the, all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Y'all, I don't know why it just occurred to me in verse 24, when Adam says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, Adam's never had to do that before. Did y'all ever notice that? Think about that. Adam was made by God out of dust. He's never had to leave mother or father, but he decrees that this is supposed to happen because this is the way that marriage is supposed to take place. He's never done it before, but he knows within his heart, through the Lord's guidance, I firmly believe in instituting this marriage between he and, and, and Eve, this is how it's supposed to be. Kind of, kind of interesting there. Uh, even preachers learn stuff when you just, just read and look. That's kind of, kind of neat. Um, that's not in your booklet. That's, that's free right there. Uh, let's get back into verse 20 tonight. So God looks and he sees, and of course God knows long before even Genesis 1-1 that, that there is no help meet yet for Adam. He creates Adam and he makes Adam to be in this garden, which is of course a place where Adam is to fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king of the garden. He is to keep it free from sin. He is to um, act as that, the, that priest of the garden to have fellowship with God and to offer worship to the Lord, uh, to keep it free from sin, to keep it purified, as well as he is to offer, uh, to offer the sacrifice of being a prophet, to preach to his own heart, to preach to his wife, um, and, and then as well uh, to be the king of this little domain that God has given to him, to have dominion over it. And notice that God had given dominion to man. 
He didn't give dominion to the elephants or the Tyrannosaurus rex or even to the sloths or whatever kind of animal you can think of. He gave it to man, the one who is made in his image. So he is to rule, to rule rightly, to rule justly, uh, to rule uh, perfectly. And so here in verse 20, Adam begins his rule, if you will, in the work. The work that he's got in the garden is, is less, as we've talked about, being a gardener and more about accomplishing and giving God glory and knowing God. And, uh, and he says in verse 20, and Adam gave names, uh, verse 19 tells us that, the, that God brings them to Adam and says, and Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. We've talked about the word help meet already and address that, but we want to look at, first of all, tonight, uh, Subpoint number four, it says, naming the animals is God's way to show Adam his missing piece and to show that Adam is the one with dominion over God's creation. So the first thing that it does show is that, that Adam is to rule, that Adam has authority over the animals, not vice versa. All right, It is Adam who rules over this creation, not creation over him. There are many today who would say that creation has the final say-so or that creation has authority over us, that we're just some sort of uh, other species of animals. That is not the case. This world was meant for us to enjoy. It was meant for us to have dominion over. However, it was not meant for us, us to abuse. So we have to understand that just because we're to have dominion over it does not mean that we go out and we take all the trash that's sitting right now in the backseat of my truck and throw it out, right? No, rather, what this means is that we treat it properly, but because of sin, the world itself, the creation itself, is groaning and deteriorating, as are we. But here, Adam is exercising his divine right and his divine gift of being able to be this sort of king or ruler over the garden and to name these animals. What a privilege this is for Adam to fulfill this work. And what God is doing as well in this, and what we're going to see in just a moment, is that God is not just using this to let Adam work and to be used in the garden to exercise this dominion that man is meant to have, but as well to give him a pictorial illustration to show him, hey, Adam, you see all these animals that you just named? <laughs> right? Look at what you don't have. You don't have that match. Uh, you don't have that help meet. And so uh, notice what the candy commentator says. For God brought the animals to Adam to show him the creatures which were formed to serve him. Uh, let me pause there for just a moment. Remember that. It was not meant for Adam to serve the animals. It was meant for animals. Creation serves our purpose, all right? So eat a cheeseburger, milk a cow, enjoy creation, all right? Absolutely enjoy it. It was meant for us. Now, do not abuse it, but enjoy it. It is meant for our use. Uh, side note, let's keep, keep moving on here in this quote. He says, that he might see what he would call them. Calling or naming presupposes acquaintance. Adam is to become acquainted with the creatures to learn their relation to him and by giving them names to prove himself their Lord. God does not order him to name them, but by bringing the beast, he gives him an opportunity of developing the intellectual capacity which constitutes his superiority to the animal world. Man is not just another animal. If he was, man would have been lined up in a line to get named as well. Instead, God sends the animals, if you will, two by two, uh, to Adam to go, look, see, male, female, male, female, now go for it, right? And what do you, what do you want to call them? And, and Adam has the, the ability and the free will to do so. God gives Adam intellect and the free will to call the animals which were created for his purposes, whatever he chooses. 
Now, this does not mean all animals in existence, but rather those chiefly in his immediate neighborhood to be subservient to his use. He is acquainted with these animals. He has watched them. He's observed them. He's seen them. He can look and see, uh, oh, hey, that thing's got four legs. Let's call it a cow. This thing's got a big head and little arms. We'll call it a T-Rex, right? All these things. Right? And he, he calls it what he uh, so desires within his heart and with the intellect that God has given it shows a little bit more about our human nature as well. We were not created to be stupid. All right? We were meant to use our intellect. We were meant to use our logic uh, that God has given to us. Now, you would say, how come it seems today that we don't have that ability anymore as far as the society goes? Well, a part of having a reprobate mind is losing the ability and having an abandoned mindset to where we're no longer able to use our intellect or logic that we're able to do. You ever watch the news anymore? And what happens? They just go around in circles and circles and circles and just name call each other. They never have anything logical to say or intellectual to say to, to get back to what is, to, to actually answer a question, right? It, we would mostly call it nonsense because it is nonsensical. Something that is nonsensical is not intellectual, it is not logical. You and I were made in the image of God and is God an intellectual being? Yes. He's certainly got to be uh, incredibly smart. Why? Because he's all-knowing. And he has uh, pl- not only planned everything, but planned everything to the exact detail. He knows uh, exactly how he's going to make man. And he makes man in such an intricate way that nothing can copy it, nothing can resemble it, nothing can top uh, the uh, beauty of how man is created and the depth of which God goes to form and fashion him ultimately to bring glory to himself, but to represent as an image bearer of uh, we're to reflect the Lord himself. And so God gives him this intellect and this free will to, to call these animals as he will. Now, the Lord does this, and this is a very interesting thing, that God is a God who teaches his people. All throughout the Bible, we're taught not just by words, but God uses a tremendous amount of illustrations in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, God, you, and even the best preachers too, from Jesus to the Apostle Paul, they used illustrations. They used object lessons. You think about the Apostle Paul. He used race running. He used um, a soldier's armor, right, for, for teaching. He used boxing, right? He used a whole multitude of different things to teach us. How about Jesus? He taught in these different uh, parables, he talked about different people groups that people knew. He talked about um, uh, even when he calls his disciples, he uses the fishing uh, to fishermen about uh, how they're going to follow him and he's going to make them fishers of men and all these things. Even in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets are, are also called and sent by God and, and are given a message to preach. And they even preach in an illustrative way to give these pictures to show what Israel is like and what the world is like and all of these different things. How about even uh, in Exodus, the ten plagues, object lessons. How about the Red Sea? Certainly it's a real and literal miracle that takes place, but it's a great object lesson. So God uses another object lesson here in the very, the very first one to a degree where he sends the animals there. And this is important because this is going to be a pattern that God is going to use over and over and over. In creation, we have several object lessons that are used to describe God's creative order and how God does things. We find uh, the breath of God, the breathing out of things, the speaking out of things. We find the Spirit hovering, right, giving the, the pictorial idea 
of like a, a mother hen over her chicks, just hovering and protecting and preparing a nest. Um, we find then uh, fast forwarding to the cross and the pictures that are there. We find uh, the temple and the tabernacle scene. We find uh, the sacrifice. We find love pictured as an object lesson of what it means to sacrifice, what it means to love. Then we find in the consummation, or, or what we would call the, the end times of things, the second coming of Christ, the etern, uh, eternal kingdom, and all these things, uh, we find when, when Christ returns, comes in the clouds, um, that there are, um, there's the ascending and descending and all these things. So we see these object lessons that God uses to teach us, not just lessons, but even more so to teach us about himself. God is not just in the business from Genesis Revelation to teach us lessons about the world. And the Bible isn't even just to learn about ourselves. Rather, it's to learn God. Because this word reveals God. And in God revealing himself to us, it also reveals now ourselves. We see who we are as image bearers. We see who we are as sinners. We see who we are as saved people. We see who we're going to be when we're glorified one day. And so God uses these things to, to teach us uh, something far greater. Another commentator writes about Adam and his naming of the animals. Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. His powers of perception and intelligence were supernaturally enlarged to know the characters, habits, and uses of each species that was brought to him. So Adam here is now fulfilling his, his role and his job as this king of the kingdom. But in this process, he's about to notice something. He's going to see uh, dogs come. He's going to be two dogs, if you will, right? There's going to be a male dog and a female dog. He's going he's to look at that and he's going to go call out a dog. Right, it's a dog. Dog moves on. Next is going to be a, a, a male cat and a female cat. He doesn't know that yet. He sees it. He goes, we'll call that cat. And it's male, it's female. Okay, the cat goes on. Next, he looks up, okay, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, okay, you know, we, rhinoceroses and all that. It goes all the way down the line. He names the animals. And all the way through, he notices that they come and they are male and female, male and female. So he begins to notice something. What God is doing is God is showing what he's about to do for Adam, but he's showing, Adam, you don't have a helpmeet like they do, but I'm going to give you one. And it's going to be, uh, this wonderful picture of how it's all supposed to truly operate and work out. Now here, as Clark writes, a help, a counterpart of himself, one formed from him, and a perfect resemblance of his person. Oh, excuse me. Um, over here, rather, um, on, the next, on the next page here, um, Clark writes, had he not possessed an intuitive knowledge of the grand and distinguishing properties of those animals, he never could have given them such names. This one circumstance is a strong proof of the original perfection and excellence of man while in a state of innocence. Nor need we wonder at that account. Adam was the work of an uh, infinitely wise and perfect being, and the effect must resemble the cause that produced it. And the Guzik writes, uh, it was obvious to Adam that the animals came in pairs and that he had no mate. Since God deliberately had Adam name the animals after seeing his need for a partner, Genesis 2.18, God used this to prepare Adam to receive the gift of woman. Now, these pairs, male and female, obviously show us what God had already decreed 
in chapter 1. It will be male and female, male and female, because there is only male and female. Okay, and This is not just go for animals. This is for people alike. This is for all created order. And it's designed for that purpose. It shows what is right. And it shows how we are as a society, as a society to deny um, what it means to be male, what it means to be female, uh, the, that mocks and, and rebels against being made in the image of God. It as well denies and, and goes contrary to the natural genetic and um, scientific order of how God has created the world to function. Okay, it, it, it denies at an intellectual level. It denies at a faith level. It, it goes against God completely. And what is natural, what is normal, how things are supposed to be. So we find the male and female pairs coming in the garden. It shows God's promise uh, to Adam and to Adam's need as well. Then we find animals showing back up again, two by two, and the flood, which would be God's promise and man's need as well. We see that God is always preparing and God is always not just teaching a lesson, but He's showing them not just their need, but He's giving them the answer to it. Because what God is going to do here in creation, uh, here in chapter 2, is that He shows man his need of his helpmeet, but He as well shows him the order of how things are supposed to be. Uh, he shows him um, uh, his, his great need and He shows him a promise of, hey, you don't have one, but you're about to. And then for there in the ark, he, he shows that two by two are coming and they're going to be uh, rescued. So those are going to be spared on the ark, but as well as promising and fulfilling that there's going to be a um, revitalization of the earth again, that God is going to bring about the same command that he had told the animals and mankind from Genesis 1. And then what he's going to tell Noah when they get off the ark, go be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Now, in verse 21 and through 25, we find the creating of Eve and the uniting them together. The, the first marriage ceremony, if you will. Now, first of all, in verse 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took at one of his ribs and closed up the flesh and stood thereof. So the first phrase, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. It is interesting to know, has anyone ever wondered what the deep sleep was, right? For you and I, if we're going to have a major surgery, right, they'll use... The whole works will go under, and then they'll wake us up. They'll feed us ice chips, and we'll go to recovery, and Lord willing, go home, right? But, but here, God puts him under this deep sleep, and, and the idea of this is, uh, as one commentator puts it, probably an ecstasy or trance like that of the prophets when they had visions and revelations of the Lord. For the whole scene was probably visible to the mental eye of Adam, and hence his rapturous exclamation. You ever wonder, it's not even just that he goes to sleep on his own and then wakes up and goes, who's she, right? He, he is put in this trance by God, and when he comes to himself, he goes, this is woman, right? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And therefore, man shall leave father and mother and, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one, right? We see this. Uh, and so, so Adam immediately, he, he knows what's going on. He knows this deal. And this is a wonderful thing. Uh, for Adam, there's nothing quite as nerve-wracking or exciting as the wedding day, right? If anyone been married in here before, right? Gotten married, right? Gentlemen, go ahead, just nod your head. Yes, your wedding day, it's the most thrilling day, ever. and it should have been, right? You are uniting together. 
you are loving and, and showing your love to one another before God. You're making promises. This is great. You're going to go on a honeymoon. You're going to eat cake. You're going to have a wife now. All of these great things. It, it should be a rapturous sort of day for, for both parties, <laughs> by the way, right? For both parties. Here, notice verse 21. It says, God caused this deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. We're going to see later that God does call, cause deep sleeps for, for other folks. We'll see it later on for Abraham and the covenant that he makes with him there. It's going to be very interesting how it's pointing towards that. Um, but look here, he says, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Now, how did God make Adam? Remember, he didn't have a rib to take him from. And he didn't speak uh, out of nothing and make him like he had done everything else. What he does with Adam is he takes dirt that he had created and like a potter would take uh, dirt and water, clay, and, and, and make it in form and fashion, and then breathe life literally into his nostrils, into his lungs, to give him and make him a living soul. Well, Eve is going to be a little bit different. She has this sort of special creation, and we should understand that as well, that, that women are not subpar. They are not some sort of lower class of citizen. Rather, here we find that they are divinely inspired by God to be created in this special way. And, and notice this. She is formed from man's rib. Now, one, scientifically, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. This does not mean that men have one less rib than women. Okay? All right? I've heard that before. Do this. You're fine. All right? Guys, you're okay. okay all right? Maybe that's why we get sick so easy. And it's always so bad because we've got one less rib. We, we have the same amount of ribs. All right? We're good here. Okay, guys? Here, what this is, though, is that this is a, a beautiful picture of what God is doing. God is teaching Adam something. He's teaching Eve something about their worth, about their marriage. He's teaching you and I something about what it means to be male, what it means to be female, and the beauty of being created and formed and fashioned by God. First, it's beautiful because we're made by God, formed and fashioned in our mother's wombs, much like he formed and fashioned Adam out of the dirt and Eve out of Adam's rib. But she comes... From him. Barnhouse writes, There's a beautiful Jewish tradition saying God made woman not out of man's foot to be under him, nor out of his head to be over him, but she was taken from under his arm that he might protect her, and from next to his heart that he might love her. The beautiful tradition, isn't it, to think about that? That this is the way that that they viewed their their wives, that they viewed their, their mothers, that they viewed women in general, as they still should be. Right? They're not lower to be stepped on, not above us, as many would, would, we have everything getting mixed up, right? We have a, a total battle right now, right? You think about this, it even happens when we're, it's ingrained in us even when we're little kids, right? What happens? In gym class or recess, we want to play boys versus girls, don't we, right? Boys versus girls, right? That's the first thing I remember playing dodgeball, kickball, whatever. Boys versus girls, boys versus girls, and of course... You know, we see how that goes. It never goes good, and everything comes fight, and all the issues that come with it. One is always trying to be better, outsmart the other one, outgrow the other one, be stronger than the other one, be better than the other one. That's not what we're looking at here, right? God shows man and woman's worth and man and woman's roles here. And she's not taken under the foot to be under him, nor out of his head to be over him, but under his arm it he might protect and provide for her, but also next to his heart so that he might love her. This is the way in which God is going to continue to show this all throughout the scripture of what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, 
in our specific roles. And yes, there are specific roles, okay? We're going to get more into that as we move forward. Uh, So God shows as well His absolute sovereign design over all things. God doesn't just, you know, all willy-nilly go, well, let's, let's see how I'll make her, I don't know. Right? He knows exactly what he's doing long before he even made Adam. He knows how he's going to do this, why he's going to do this. He's got the roles in store. He's got the order in store. Because ultimately, as we're going to see, is that the beauty of being man and wife and having this first marriage together is it's ultimately going to picture, because they're going to have a perfect marriage here. We'll see that in a minute. Right? The only one ever, and it's not going to last that long because sin's going to come into it. And as soon as sin comes into it, it gets bad quick. All right? But what marriage does is it's to picture what's to come later on. And that is to be the church and Jesus Christ. That we are the bride and He is the bridegroom. And it's to picture the sacrifice and the love and the protection and the provision that He provides for, for us, His bride, and then for His bride, that for us, like Eve, we were meant to... Uh, to serve, to be a helpmeet, to, uh, to submit to the husband, to the groom. And we see that unfortunately sin, though, has caused all of this to go all awry. Now, Sorensen notes here, and this is kind of interesting, something so simple as a rib contained all the genetic code God had already created in Adam. He supernaturally transmitted the genetic code into the first woman. It is mind-boggling to try to put our brains there to where we could picture all of this happening. I can't imagine being literally like a fly on the wall and to watch this happen in the garden as, as man has just had these animals show up to him and he goes, dog, cat, T-Rex, rhino, all this stuff goes all the way through the list. And then next, as he notices, I don't have a help meet, and God says, sleep, he sleeps. And, and, and really to the idea is that he is placed in this trans-like state like the prophets were, which Adam Remember, he's acting as a prophet, priest, and king. So he is seeing this vision that God is doing as he takes a rib from Adam to form his wife. And then it says then that, uh, that God then closed up the flesh instead thereof. And, and you could even maybe imagine a, a scar there. We, we, we're not told. But then verse 22 says, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Here this is about to give us the uniting of the two together, where two become one. It says, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. Literally. She's literally taken from him. Literally, uh, he, he's got, if anyone's got one less rib, but now it's Adam, right? He's had a rib taken from him to create his wife and how God formed and fashioned him from dirt. And now he's formed and fashioned her from, from Adam's a rib, and it says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now this is interesting as well because just like the way the dog, the cat, the T-Rex, and the rhino were, they were the exact same. Right? They mirrored each other. The only difference was that they were different sexes. And now, Adam and Eve, they are both image bearers, made in the image of God. But they are different sexes with different roles and responsibilities but yet they both bring what the other one needs to the table they both complement one another and that is what is so needed in every marriage and really in every relationship you've heard i'm sure the phrase opposites attract right and i think there is something maybe to it because there is a complement that takes place with people who are different where one is strong this way normally in the marriage the other one is 
is if one is, it does not struggle with being anxious over money, normally the other one is a worrywart over every penny. <laughs> or, or if uh, one is good at planning and organizing, then normally the other one is cluttered and, you know, it's just the way the person has worked, but they complement and they bring together this, this balance to, to make a, a, a marriage, to make a relationship. And he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now the phrase, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh is, is very descriptive, obviously physically, but as one commentator puts it, these phrases are expressive of joyous astonishment at the suitable helpmate. He, it's, it's like this, and I don't know that we can probably wrap our brains around it, but it would be like, y'all ever seen, oh, what's that movie called? Got the twins that didn't know they were twins and they met at summer camp. Cammie, you know that movie? You don't remember what it's called? <laughs> Me neither. Parent Trap. There we go. See, I knew it. <laughs> see, that's that complementarianism, y'all. <laughs> Did y'all see that? It had the wavelength. But in Parent Trap, what happens is you got one twin that goes to camp and grew up with mom, another twin that grew up with dad, and they don't know that they're related. They don't even know each other exists. They show up to summer camp, and then eventually, guess what? They find out that they're the twins, and they kind of have this sort of, <gasps> we, you, I, we, right? They, they realize we're, we're of the same here, same family. We're, we're, we're siblings here, not just siblings. We're twins. We're like one. They did everything, all these things. For, for Adam here, it's the same idea as like he's, it's like he's almost looking in a mirror. He goes, you, you look like me, granted different parts and physically speaking and, and features, but he's going, you bear the image of, of the creator like I do, right? Because look over there, there's a, there's a, a mommy rhino and a, and a daddy rhino and, and everything all down the line. I just named them all, right? I just named it rhino. And, and here, look, there you are. There is this sense that and for Adam, there is this sort of completeness that, that comes about. Not that he was lonely or incomplete before, but now there is this sort of joy that has entered into his life. Because the institution of marriage and relationship with one another is given by God. That the two then become one flesh. That in marriage, they're no longer viewed as two people. They're viewed as, as one. As one family, one household. To, to leave and to cleave where literally... Two into one, it's fusing together emotionally, spiritually, physically, of course. But marriage is so critical, and it's going to be so critical to the founding all throughout the Bible of the home, of, of how the order of society is supposed to go, how God is going to use it not only to do those things, but as well to picture his relationship with his believers, how it's supposed to be, how the two are supposed to operate together. But notice a couple of phrases here in verse 24, though. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Now, it does not mean that they stop having fellowship or relationship together, but the relationship changes. There is this strange time that I'm sure many of you guys know all too well about as you're getting older and then as you get married, that the relationship does change between child and parent. And it's a weird time. It really is a strange thing. I remember going going through that and trying to figure it out and it's like things things are changing right it was it was absolutely changing and it was strange i was only child she was the only girlfriend I ever had she was the only fiance I ever had only wife right the whole thing and, and so going through this whole process 
watching things change was odd. But yet the Lord blessed it. And there is a, such, still a strong relationship between myself and my parents. But, but there is a higher relationship than me and my parents. And it is me and my wife. We have to understand that when we leave father and mother, it's not that we forsake relationship or we forsake um, knowing them. We're not saying, all right, you're dead to me. Thanks for 18 years. I'm out, right? No, it's not like that at all. But rather the relationship does change. And it must Because now the highest relationship other than Adam with God that he will ever have is between he and his wife. And for Eve, the same is said too. The highest that she has is between herself and the Lord. And then it is herself and her husband. Notice it is not the kids first. Because it is not and it cannot be. Kids come along later on, but they do not go and swip flop and go... Well, now that we got kids, husband, you're now below that, and the kids are, are he, it doesn't work that way. What happens is children who are meant to be a blessing of God can sometimes become an idol. And this happens in many homes and marriages. Now the relationship between husband and wife, that was the first bond, first covenant relationship together that they promised each other is now being put on the back burner. And then at some places even being taken off the stove for a multitude of other things. We have got to understand that this relationship that Adam and Eve have and that every husband and wife have has got to be so critical because as that goes, so goes relationship with kids. So goes relationship of the whole home, the ecosystem of the home, if you will, how, how our churches go and society goes, the whole nine yards. But they leave and then they cleave. And the two says that they shall be one flesh. This, of course, has several different implications. A physicalness in the sense that, that sex is meant for marriage and marriage alone. And it is a gift. It's not a dirty thing, especially in the bonds of marriage. It is a beautiful thing of two becoming one. It is meant for, for not just procreation, but for the relationship and for a bond that is to be built and a trust that is to be built with one another. But then as well, the cleaving and becoming one flesh it is that now he's... Uh, you, you and I or anyone else who's been married or is married, it is no longer about, um, hey, I got to make sure I keep mom and dad happy no matter what. It's going, I got to take care of you no matter what, right? It, there's many days I won't make you happy, but at the end of the day, the, the one person, right? I, I love you guys to death, but the one that's going to be there when I'm dying is going to be her, not y'all, right? Sharon might be taking care of me now, but she's not going to come take care of my dribble when I'm drooling, you know, on myself and, 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 can't, and can't eat and take care of myself. She's not going to do that, right? Sharon's hoping to be long gone, right? It's going to be my wife. It's going to be your spouse. It's going to be your loved one. So we see this is so key to leave and to cleave and to cleave with all that you have to your spouse. Marriage is first of all given by God. It is a gift of God. A beautiful gift of God. Then we're going to see here in a little bit that it's going to be destroyed by sin. The reason why any marriage fails is because of sin. And you can make arguments about one or the other or about it was only so-and-so's fault or this person's fault. And unfortunately, those arguments are all too real and happen all too often. But no matter which way you shake it, the reason why we have any problem in our life, the reason why we have any issue in relationships, the reason why we have death, separation, the reason why we have fighting and arguing and disagreements 
It's because of sin. Plain and simple. However, marriage is to be revived and can be revived by obedient faith and practice. By simply trusting in the Lord, returning to His Word, and returning to what we're meant to be as husband and wife. If we would simply do that, everything else would shake out. But the institution is, is given here, and this is a perfect marriage. In a perfect place. How do we know? Look at verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, everyone in here tonight is clothed. You all got clothes on. Praise the Lord. And you have them on for a reason. No one thought tonight before they go to church that it didn't matter if you wore clothes or not. As a matter of fact, even before we come to church, we often think, I've got to have a certain kind of clothes on at times, even to a fault. The reason why we put clothes on ultimately is not to look good necessarily, but rather to cover up shame and nakedness. Adam and Eve don't have a stitch of clothes on. They're not wearing jeans, slacks, culottes, dresses, shirts, ties, none of those things. They have nothing on, and guess what? They are not ashamed. Why are they not ashamed? Because there is no sin. And because there is no sin, it is a perfect marriage. Why don't we have perfect marriages today? Because if you take one sinner and another sinner and put them together, what will you have? You will have two sinners looking at each other going, this must be your fault. Another one will be on you, this must be your fault. Right? It's not my fault. Because that's what's going to happen in chapter 3. Eve's going to blame. Adam's going to blame. Everybody's going to blame. And guess what happens in probably every single fight or disagreement, if you want to call it that, in a marriage? What happens? It's a blame game. It's always somebody or something else's fault. We never take our responsibility. We never do this. And even take it outside of marriage. What happens when you have a fight with a coworker? when you have a fight with a sibling, when you have a fight with a friend or disagreement? It's always, well, he said, she said, you did this. Well, this. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't. Uh, right? It's always, well, the only reason why I did what I did is because you did what you did. And you did it first and, you, and yours is worse. Right? It's always that way. So the reason why I don't have perfect marriage the only reason why I don't have a perfect place is because sin comes in. Sin will come in in the innocence that Adam and Eve both have and the perfection that was there in that moment will be destroyed. Individually and as a couple. And what does this mean? It means that the children that these two have are going to be born sinners. And that they're going to grow up one day and have wives and husbands and they're going to have sinful relationships and sinful outcomes and that sin now has corrupted every single relationship that there is so therefore what's going to happen is that in order to get back to the place where we can be naked and unashamed if you will is when we are laid bare before God according to his word and by his word and through his word and that we simply trust in him that our relationship with him is made right first that we are reconciled to God because then there is no longer any shame because God has set us free from our sin. God has set us free. He has taken our nakedness and He has clothed us in His righteousness. You want to talk about a, a rags to riches. We go from uh, filthy rags that we're clothed in or dirty fig leaves that, that truly don't cover up our sin to then God Himself clothes us in His own righteousness. We are unashamed. What a place this could be. Can you imagine, have you ever thought for long 
what would it be like to live in this place? You ever thought long about what it would be like to literally get along with everybody that's on the earth? They were able to do that. Granted, there are only two at this point, but you would think it'd be a whole lot easier, but it is because there is no sin. You ever thought about what it was like to perfectly love and serve your wife? You ever thought about what it's like to perfectly love and submit to your husband? You ever wondered what it's like to not have a disagreement over finances or where you go out to eat that night? Here it hasn't happened. It's perfect. They haven't had to have those arguments, those disagreements, because in this moment without sin, Adam is fulfilling properly his role as prophet, priest, and king over his household, over the creation. Eve is perfectly submitting. They're getting to know each other. Things are great. And ultimately, the reason why it is so great is not because they're both just submitted to one another, but it's because their hearts are submitted to God. Wives, you want a good husband? Well, the only way that's going to happen is if he's submitted to the Lord. If you want to be a good wife, the only way that's going to happen is if you were submitted to the Lord. We must be submitted to the Lord first before we can properly submit and surrender to one another. If we want our spouses to be able to submit and to serve and to submit to one another and to help each other and to be what we're supposed to be for one another, we have to first be what we're supposed to be for God and towards God. If our hearts are not right to God and before God, our hearts will not be right to our spouse or to any other relationship that there is. Now I'm going to bring this to a close tonight because we, we don't have quite enough time to get through, through the rest of this because I want us to take our time to look at the covenant of marriage and the family, the home, the roles, how things are truly supposed to be, because I, I want you to know this tonight as we bring this to an end. As you look around, this is not what it's supposed to be like. As you go out those doors and you watch the news or, or you talk to family and friends, and what do we see? More evidence of that this is not what it was supposed to be like. What we find is sin everywhere. That has destroyed every single relationship. But what we do find, though, is the blessed hope is that one day in Christ, every relationship will be renewed, be restored, and be, will, will be made right. And that even now, today, on this side of the grave, that there is hope for every relationship to as well be restored, to be renewed, to be reconciled through Christ and only through Christ as we submit to Him. So maybe tonight, whether you're married, whether you're not, doesn't matter. What does matter tonight is that we want a good relationship and we want to be good image bearers before God and to live as we're supposed to. The first thing that we must do is surrender and submit to God and His Word. May that take first place in our heart long before we attempt for anything else. We must take care of the relationship we have with God first and foremost. If that's going to be strong, and if that is strong, then other relationships will be strong. If our relationship with God is weak, our other relationships will then be weak. May we submit to the Lord, to the Lord alone. Let's pray tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. Grateful for Your Word. Thankful for, for the gift of marriage and relationship that You've given to us, Your image bearers. And God, I pray that, Lord, that we would submit to You and submit our relationships to you, God, that we would be glorifying and honoring to you in all things. Lord, that we would seek to know you above all things and to make you known. 
God, I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us tonight to reconcile anywhere that we need reconciliation in our lives and any relationship we might have. And Lord, that ultimately we would um, submit to you and to have sweet fellowship with you, God, and that we would live and walk in the victory that you've given to us in Christ. And Lord, that we would be used of you. And God, that we would bring you glory and honor in all things. We love you and we thank you for this time and for this night. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.